0: Welcome to this message from the teaching ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Orlando, Florida, under the leadership of Senior Pastor Mike Osborne. Uh, reintroduce me and say my name is John Gullett. Uh, I am the pastor who has been called as church planter for Lake Nona. Uh, and that uh, church is uh, beginning to take a little bit of shape. Uh, we're meeting in different homes on Sunday afternoon to gather the people together into a core group. So if you live in Lake Nona and are interested uh, in being a part of a church family there, uh, seeing your friends and neighbors come to faith in Jesus Christ, we'd love to meet you. We'd love to have you pray for us. We'd love for you to join us. Again, we're meeting every Sunday afternoon. So if you go to uh, Facebook and search for Christ Community Church Lake Nona. You'll find uh, our page and can find out more about us and contact me. And And uh, I would love to have the opportunity to, to talk with you. Uh, this morning, uh, I'm going to be reading from God's Word from Second Corinthians chapter 4. If you look in the Bibles that are there in your rows, it's page 1144, 1144. Um, I'm actually going to be reading from the English Standard Version. What you have there is the NIV, so it'll be a little bit different, but you'll be able to follow along with us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're looking at verses 1 through 12. So listen now, these are the words of our God. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. We pray now that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from this portion of your gracious word, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth, at Corinth, Paul's very legitimacy as a pastor, as an apostle, has been brought into question. He doesn't do things the way they do them in Jerusalem. And there are folks who are suggesting there may not be, there's something that's probably not right about him and about what he's doing. There's uncertainty. And so he writes this passage to say, okay, here it is. Here's what we're all about. This is the main thing. This passage is important to us because we face uncertainty, don't we? I'm planting a church, Lord willing, in Lake Nona. Exactly how is that going to happen and what is it going to look like and when are these things going to take place? There's uncertainty. You, UPC family, are facing significant change. There's some uncertainty there, right? And maybe you're just visiting this morning and you know just the reality of life in this country in the last week, that there was an important election. And whether or not you're pleased or worried about the outcome of it, the reality is that what is facing us as a country is uncertainty, right? So Paul writes in this passage words that we need to hear and wrestle with today because he writes to them and says, here's the main thing. Here's what we're all about. And hopefully it's not surprising, but what he says is the main thing is the gospel. What we're all about as a people, as a church, as a ministry, is the gospel. I know that's incredibly simple, but the reality is you need to know that your unbelieving friends and neighbors probably don't know that that's what the church of Jesus Christ is all about. Because they come to a different conclusion, sadly, often because looking at our lives and our behavior, they come to the conclusion that what the church is about and what Christianity is about is this list of do's and don'ts, this moral code that you'd better live up to in order for God to accept you. Their experience of the church and of Christians around them communicates to them that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus... It means changing the music you listen to. You need to read these books and not those. You need to at least give some of your money in these places. And friends, I'm afraid in this last week, they think that it means you'd better vote for this candidate if you're going to be a Christian. That's what they think the church is about. That's what they think Christianity is about. And we have the opportunity to say, no, that is not what the church of Jesus Christ is all about. That is not what Christianity is about. The main thing for the church, the main thing that makes Christianity what it is, is the gospel. The gospel proclamation Of who Jesus is and what he has done. They need to hear the open statement of the truth that Paul talks about here in this passage. He puts it so clearly and succinctly in verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. How do we know that's? What the gospel proclamation is about. Why is that the gospel proclamation? He says it in verse 6. For God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts. To give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Matt was exactly right. How do we know that this is what Christianity is about? It's what the church is about? Because God himself has. Spoken, he's created new spiritual life in us so that we can see the glory of God in the face of Jesus and understand that Jesus is what the church is all about. The proclamation of who Jesus is and what he has done. That's what ministry is about. That's what we're about. Paul will write in the very next chapter, chapter five of 2 Corinthians and say, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the gospel. That's the main thing. He, being God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for our sake, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We have good news. We have good news for our friends and our neighbors and good news for the world. News that's so good it changes everything. I love J.R.R. Tolkien's story, The Lord of the Rings, for many, many reasons. But one of them, I read it now uh, again and again so that I can get to the, the concluding chapters. And when the climax of the story has taken place, and for those of you who don't know it, when when evil is defeated, not just pushed back, but absolutely and utterly destroyed, when evil is destroyed, news is carried to those waiting to hear. And this is what Tolkien wrote. There came a great eagle flying. And he bore tidings beyond hope from the lords of the west, crying, Sing now, ye people of the tower of Anor, for the realm of Sauron is ended forever. And the dark tower is thrown down. Sing and rejoice, ye people of the tower of God. For your watch hath not been in vain, and the black gate is broken, and your king has passed through, and he is victorious. Sing and be glad, all ye children of the west, for your king shall come again, and he shall dwell among you all the days of your life. And the tree that was withered shall be renewed, and he shall plant it in the high places, and the city shall be blessed. Sing, all ye people. That's gospel proclamation. Something has been accomplished on our behalf that changes everything about the way we understand ourselves and the world around us. Because our King has passed through and He is victorious and He shall come again and He will live, He will dwell among us and He will restore The earth itself. Sing, therefore, ye children of men and be glad. That's the proclamation of the gospel. That's the main thing that our faith is about. The gospel proclamation that what God promised in the garden from the very beginning, as soon as human beings lifted their fists to God and rebelled against Him, He promised and said it will not always be so. Right, children? It will not always be so. But the seed of the woman will come and he will crush the head of the serpent. And in Jesus, we see that it has been accomplished. What God promised in the garden has been accomplished in Jesus. And now it is proclaimed to the world. That's why Paul says in verse 1, we have this ministry by the mercy of God. We didn't earn it or deserve it. We didn't figure it out. We didn't make it up. We've received this tremendous gospel proclamation and it transforms us and we get to be the heralds of it. To sing it to our friends and neighbors and to a watching world. We get to join our voices with our brothers and sisters around the world who share our faith. And throughout the ages... In proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord. I need to unpack that proclamation just a little bit more for us. If you'll bear with me. The proclamation, what Paul says, is what we proclaim is not ourselves. But here it is, Jesus Christ as Lord. Jesus Christ is not his last name. I know most of you get that. But we, we need to explain and so people understand. The name Christ is another title for him which means anointed one. Messiah, Redeemer, Jesus the Messiah as Lord, kurios. Now again, that is a word that, that English just fails us a bit in helping us understand the gravity of that title, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because we live in North America in the 21st century and we don't have lords, we don't have kings, Right? But to get a sense of how radical it was that the pledge of allegiance, as it were, for the Roman Empire was Caesar is Lord. Caesar is curious. The proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord was nothing less than insurrection. And the result of it was you'd be thrown to the lions. It is a radical world-changing, life-altering proclamation that Jesus Christ is Lord. A dear friend of mine in his book tries to get at what unpacking how big this word is and what it means. And what he suggests is that we need to, to pile up lots of English words to try to get at it. That when we read that Jesus is Lord in the New Testament, what we need to think Is that Jesus is commander in chief, president, sole owner, master, boss, CEO, king, hero. He's, He's all of these things and more packed together in that one title that he is Lord. And you need to know that Jesus absolutely understood himself to be the Lord of heaven and earth. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus himself says, The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. What? you kidding me? Jesus, a man, declares and says, The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Do you understand what that means? It means that when you sin against a friend, a neighbor, a brother, a sister, when you wrong them, Jesus says, because I am Lord of heaven and earth, your transgression is primarily against me as the Lord. And I have authority on earth to forgive sins. All the sins that are committed on earth are committed against me. And I as Lord have authority on earth to forgive them. That's who He is. So we just can't... Jesus doesn't allow you just to think of Him as a spiritual advisor. As a good friend who's there for us in our time of need. If, that is only, if that's your only view of Jesus, if that is all that you think of Him, then you're not taking Jesus on His own terms. You're not relating to the real Jesus who lived and walked and spoke and died and rose from the dead. Verse 4 in our passage, Paul says that he is the image of God. Verse 6, that the glory of God is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. The writer to the Hebrews in chapter 1 and verse 3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I've always been astounded at that declaration that that Jesus upholds the universe not with the might of his hand, the strength of his arm. He doesn't have to lift a hand. He upholds the universe with the word of his power. He is Lord of heaven and earth. To see Jesus is to see God and to know Jesus is to know God because Jesus is himself God in the flesh. And we are Christ's ambassadors. We are His heralds who get to say that this God in the flesh, the Lord of heaven and earth, has accomplished redemption for you. And He gives it for free if you will receive it from His hand and bow the knee before Him We get to be the heralds of that tremendous good news. The gospel, friends, is the main thing for us personally, and he is the main thing for the church. The second point corresponds to the first. Can you figure out what it is? If the first thing is the main thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the counterpoint to that is we're not the main thing. You're not the main thing, church. This is true for churchgoers and church members. You need to hear that you're not the main thing because the reality is you can be tempted to live and think as though the church exists to satisfy you as a customer or a consumer of religious goods. Oh, I know you'd never say that out loud. We're much too nice to put it that way. But functionally, your involvement in the church, in this church or any other, can appear to be motivated primarily by convenience rather than calling, by viewing yourselves as those to be served rather than those who are sent. You're not the main thing. But Cheer up. You're not alone. There are among you Uh, Those who I think most likely struggle with embracing the reality that they're not the main thing even more than you do. And that's pastors. That's folks who hold position or roles in the church of Jesus Christ. I think we struggle with it more than anybody else. To embrace the reality that we're not the main thing. Look at what Paul says in verse 2. He says, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. My question is this. Why in the world does Paul feel the need to say that? Yes, I know he's speaking primarily and firstly of his opponents there in Corinth, but the reality is that pastors and leaders in the church are tempted to do all of those things. Tempted to use disgraceful and underhanded ways. Tempted to tamper with God's word. How do I know that that's true? Because it's true for me. What does it look like? How, do, how would something like that happen? It's so easy. Let me tell you, it happens just like this. Somebody says, oh, you're planting a church in Lake Nona. When's it going to start? Where are you going to meet? What sorts of ministries are you going to have? When, when are those things going to happen? And friends, right in that moment, it may not be visible on my face, but my heart is in crisis. You know why? Because I'm tempted to to smooth, to avoid, to exaggerate. I'm tempted to lie to you. I'm tempted to lie to you. You know why? Because at that moment, what I'm tempted most towards is to. I want you to like me. I want you to like me so much that you'll come to my church so that you'll help and be a part of it. And I have to confess it and out it because when that becomes the main thing for me before I even know it I've started lying to God's people. I'm tempted to use deceitful and underhanded ways I can even be tempted to tamper with God's Word. I don't think I'm alone. Every pastor is tempted that way. Every leader in the church. Because we, at that moment, what happens is that I crave the approval of men more than the grace of God. Functionally, the, the, the main thing becomes my approval. What you think of me instead of the proclamation of who Jesus is and what He's done. Now, I know that, that when we start in ministry and at the beginning, that's not why we go into ministry. Again, how does it happen? Friends, I tell you that you, you, others of you are in other types of ministry, and you know this to be true for yourself, that you can live a number of years and you can preach a number of sermons and you can pray a number of prayers and you can teach a number of Bible studies and lead a number of small groups and God not have anything to do with it. Look at what Paul says and recognize it for how courageous and radical it is when he says in verse 3 and 4: even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What he's saying is: we've renounced these underhanded, deceitful ways. We've renounced using cunning and tampering with God's Word by the open statement of the truth. We're going to proclaim the good news of the Gospel of who Jesus is and what He has done. And the reality is that some people are not going to like it or they're not going to feel called to it. Our main thing is not contingent on how people respond to us. The main thing is still the main thing. And the way that a pastor stays in that place, in that posture, the way that leaders in ministry, the way we stay in that posture is through embracing the humility that says, yes, Lord, You are the main thing. The proclamation of Your gospel of Jesus Christ as Lord. I want to be the main thing that people know about the church, about Christianity, about ministry, about life as a follower of Jesus. That's what it is for pastors, what it is for me, I'm tempted to lie. I want you to like me. What is it for you? What is it for you? What what would be what are you tempted to make the main thing instead of the gospel? What would your friends say? What would your coworkers say is the main thing for you? What would your spouse say? What would your children say? We're not the main thing. The gospel is the main thing. But there's glorious good news in this passage because it proclaims to us that God uses us, even us, as heralds, as ministers of this gospel. Years ago, I heard us sermon this passage by Pastor John Hall. And, and he mentioned, I used as an illustration, the story uh, of Graham Greene's novel, The Power and the Glory. That's where I got the title for the sermon. And in this novel, we find that in a particular province of Mexico, uh, in this season, the government has been overthrown, and one of the results is that the church has been outlawed in this province of Mexico. And when we start the story, we find that the last priest in the province is on the run. He's running for his life. He's the last priest available in the province to serve God's people. And he's running and hiding. And as we get to know him, we find that when people meet him, his breath usually smells like alcohol because he drinks too much. He's embarrassed and it's really hard to go to one particular village because he has an illegitimate child. And everybody knows it. Internally, he struggles with doubts about God and his calling. And yet, as you read the story, what you find is that everywhere he goes, God blesses his people. God uses his ministry to give grace to his people. In the book, he's not even dignified with a name. He's only called the whiskey priest. The whiskey priest. But everywhere this whiskey priest goes, God uses him. God blesses his people. God gives grace through this wretch of a man. Now, friends, I want to tell you if we could take off every mask in the room, if our hearts and souls and all of our failures and brokenness could be revealed to one another in an instant, do you know what we'd see? Whiskey priests you'd see a whiskey priest. And I'd see a whole room full of whiskey priests. We may not have those particular failings, but we're whiskey priests nonetheless. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. God uses whiskey priests. He uses jars of clay. Because, again, friends, if the mission of the church, if the advancement of the gospel and the building up of the church of Jesus Christ depends on the resources that we have in ourselves, we're lost. But it doesn't. We have this treasure in jars of clay. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Because we follow the path of our Savior. Who hung on a cross. And in that moment hanging on the cross appeared to all the world as an abject failure. Do you understand that? As he hung there on the cross, he is the one who was crushed. He is the one who was forsaken even by his father who cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He appeared to everyone that day as a failure. But the grave couldn't hold him, could it? And death had no mastery over him, did it? But the surpassing power of God resides in him and flows through him so that he rose from the dead, so that he crushed death to death. And he is risen today. And he is seated on his throne. And he is delighted to pour the treasure of his gospel proclamation into you, into me, into jars of clay so that the world will see the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Verses 8 to 12 demonstrate for us, friends, we will often be afflicted and perplexed, and I don't like to be perplexed. We will often be perplexed, persecuted, struck down. And yet through us, the glorious gospel of grace is and will be proclaimed. Through facing difficulty and even death, and especially death of our reputations and our pride. The life of Jesus is and will be manifest, will be lived out, will be incarnate, will be given flesh in our lives. Again later in this very book. 2 Corinthians 12. Paul writes and says. "My," In talk, talking about his own thorn in the flesh. He says Jesus appeared to him. And spoke to him and said. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore Paul says. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Dear brothers and sisters, if you have come to the end of yourself and recognize yourself to be a jar of clay, a whiskey priest, someone who is messed up, needs help, someone who is broken and powerless, but for Jesus, then welcome. Welcome. That's what the church is about. It's who the church is made up of. As jars of clay, we will regularly disappoint one another, hurt one another. We'll need to confess our sins and apologize and ask for forgiveness. We'll need to walk in a posture that demonstrates we're trusting, not in ourselves, but in the treasure of the gospel that has been given to us. We believe this is what the Bible is about. This is what the church is to be about. It's what Christianity is about. What we proclaim is not ourselves. But Jesus Christ is Lord. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. We're whiskey priests. To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We have good news. We have good news for the world. Church, you have a happy faith. You have a happy faith because it declares that, that our lives are defined by what has been accomplished on our behalf by Jesus. And that has been proclaimed to us, revealed to us, this glorious grace, this tremendous good news which says our King has been victorious over sin and death and hell itself. And He has risen from the dead. And He pours the treasure of the gospel out into our hearts so that we get to be His heralds. To say, Sing, ye children of men. Because Jesus is alive. Because he loves us. Because he has accomplished redemption for us. And we get to share it with the world. Amen. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for reminding us again and again and again that, that the main thing is the gospel of Your Son. It's the story of this world and the story of our lives. is the story of, of needing a hero and finding one in Jesus. One who lived the life we should have lived and died the death we deserve to die so that we might have new life in Him. Lord, We confess we believe. Help our unbelief. Holy Spirit, would you apply this word to our hearts and minds? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We at University Presbyterian Church thank you for listening to this message. Our mission is to help people know God, grow together, and serve others. To learn more about the church or how to have a vital relationship with God, visit our website at www.upc-orlando.com or call our offices at 407-384-3300.